Hello and welcome again to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And today I'm very pleased to say that we are joined again by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Last week, Simon was not available. We had a very interesting, I thought, conversation with John Kay, Professor John Kay, about his thoughts and his time as a non-executive director of Scottish Mortgage. But this week, it's back to normal. It's a new year, been a rather dramatic start to the new year with events in Washington. And uh, of course, we are now gone past the Brexit transition period. So it's been a very eventful week. And that's also been true, I think, of the market, Simon. Perhaps you can tell us what's happening to the market this week. With pleasure, yeah. It's actually been a good start to the year. The FTSE All Share, so the uh, leading index for the UK market, uh, is up over 5%. It's probably going to end up the week about 5.5%, despite uh, all those various developments that we've seen this week. Investment companies, uh, in terms of their index, are not quite as impressive. They'll probably finish up around about 2%, but a positive start to the year. In terms of the sector average discount, that really um, narrowed in as we got towards the end of last year, probably ended up about 1.6% at the end of 2020. Um, it's widened out a little bit, but no, not too much more than uh, 2% or so at the moment. So when we think back to March last year, when it briefly touched 22%, it's really come a long way back. Yes, so we've pretty much come back completely full circle now to where we were about a year ago. A 2% discount, historically that's pretty narrow, but of course the sector makeup of the uh, investment trust sector has changed, of course, and different, many more alternative asset investment trusts, which are tend to trade on narrower premiums. I think it's probably fair to say. I guess the first thing one might say about this week is that uh, it, you don't necessarily need news to drive the market up. There hasn't been a lot of news this week. As we say, we're going to be quite short on the number of uh, significant news announcements this week for the first week of the year. That's not untypical, but the market has moved up quite strongly despite that. We did speculate about that towards the end of last year, that if the Brexit transition period, there was a deal, the UK being relatively unloved, uh, and if there is some sign of confidence about a recovery, then we would expect to see the UK market do at least relatively well. And indeed, it's proved to do that. So let's quickly just take in some of the actually specific news. There isn't a lot, as I say, though one feature of it won't surprise regular listeners. Let's start off then with corporate activity. Let's start off with Value and Income Trust, which incidentally, uh, Professor John Kay is a non-executive director of that trust. He did briefly mention it last week in our conversation. But what's the story with them, Value and Income Trust? Yeah, so Value and Income Trust, um, ahead of Christmas, actually, the Investment Trust announced that it was looking to uh, get shareholder approval to change its investment policy. And just to uh, remind listeners, this is a hybrid, or it has historically been a hybrid investment trust. So it has had a UK commercial property, as well as uh, a UK uh, equity income type portfolio. Uh, and the idea being uh, to pay a, a generous dividend and also generate some capital growth. It's been a little bit up in the air for some time. It's traded on a big discount in terms of where this particular investment trust was going. We'd already knew that the, the managers of the equity portfolio, Olymp, had actually uh, tendered its resignation because they're closing uh, that side of its business down. So there was already a question mark over it. Uh, but ahead of Christmas, they announced that they were looking basically to adopt a, a pure play UK commercial property mandate going forward. Um, there was a vote this week. Uh, a general meeting was held in the first week of January. 
uh, and unsurprisingly shareholders voted in support of those proposals. It's not the world's largest investment trust, probably a market cap of about 86 million. But interesting, the move away, despite your comments earlier, Jonathan, about the, the prospects for UK equities, they've decided really there's a better opportunity set in UK commercial property. And just to be clear, the, the property portfolio has been skewed in recent years to uh, industrial, leisure and supermarket sectors. So they're not really playing uh, retail, which has obviously been the problematic area. And they're very much focused on long leases and index linked rents. So do you think that will have some attraction? Do you think that maybe one of the purposes of this is to try and make it into more of a mainstream property investment trust that people might look at? I mean, it's got a good long term record anyway, in terms of uh, the property part of its portfolio, at least. Uh, do you think that might be behind their, what they're doing? Or is it just uh, the fact that the equity team is basically stepping back? Well, you're right that the record on the property side is is pretty impressive and over a long term as well. And I think they're pretty opportunistic uh, in the way that they uh, have invested this portfolio, the the property portfolio. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to note. One, just in general, UK commercial property as an asset class is out of favour. Obviously, it was hit very hard last year and we've seen some pretty big discounts in that area. Uh, So one would suggest there's still a lot of uncertainty, particularly in the short term, quite how commercial property uh, goes this year. But at the same time, this particular investment trust is yielding over 6%. I think the figure is uh, 6.4% on a historic basis at the moment. And certainly if they can sustain it or kind of generate those kind of yields, then one suspects they will uh, come onto the the radar of a few more people. Clearly, people do need income, though it is one of the, the smaller uh, investment trust companies, sub 100 million. Um, so again, for some of the kind of wealth managers in particular, it would be too small for them to uh, get involved. But certainly one for the the enthusiasts. You can imagine people having a look at this one again. Yes, and therefore, uh, just to go back on a point, I think we did discuss before. But as you're the expert in this area, Simon. Do you think it'll be moving out of the UK equity income sector, presumably, into a some kind of property sector? Well, I'm sure the good people on the AIC Stats Committee will, will uh, ponder this one long and hard. But one would suspect that now that it has received shareholder approval, it would uh, move across to the UK commercial property uh, subsector. That would seem to be common sense. OK, so let's move on. And we do have a bit of news about fundraising this week. Uh, obviously, as we said many times last year, there was a lot of fundraising in a mad rush in the last three months of last year. And quite a few people did get their deals away before Christmas. But the first one of this uh, new year, can you tell us which house that is from and uh, what the proposal is? Yes, that's right. So the Shehalian Fund, hopefully I've pronounced that correctly, um, which is a Bailey Gifford uh, investment company. They announced this week they are considering a potential C-share issue. uh, And that will be targeted to institutional and professional investors uh, at an issue price of a uh, dollar per share. The size of the, the issue is still to be determined, uh, but it's not expected to exceed uh, $500 million. Um, there'll be a prospectus published um, probably by the end of March, and the trading in the C-shares is expected to begin before the end of April. Um, so it's it's an interesting one. We, we spent a lot of time talking about the Bailey Gifford Investment Trust Stable in general, uh, but this one's probably off the radar for most people, and that's quite intentional in terms of what Bailey Gifford are trying to do. This particular investment company was launched less than two years ago, March 2019, and it was really targeted at Bailey Gifford's institutional clients uh, to invest in unquoted companies. It's a pure play on uh, private companies. And again, this is consistent with the the type of names that you see in the Scottish mortgage 
uh, investment trust portfolio. So they're looking to invest in um, transformational growth businesses, I think is how they describe it. And the idea is that they become minority investors in these later stage private businesses. Um, and so the Shihanian Fund was created really to give their institutional clients a chance to have a, a pure play on this. Uh, but then the prospects of a seashell reflect the fact that they are now, or they were at the end of 2020, 85% invested and uh, it's trading on a 20 plus percent premium. My understanding was it was actually called Ski Hallion, but I may be wrong as well. I don't actually know. I'm not a great mountaineer in Scotland. It's certainly named after a mountain in Scotland, I believe. Uh, hence its ticker, which is MNTN. And they're using a seashell issue because presumably it takes time to get these uh, unlisted investments uh, into the portfolio. And as you've explained before, a C-share issue is a, is a good way to raise money if you're not going to be able to invest the proceeds straight away. It won't therefore act as a cash drag on the main portfolio. Presumably with the premium where, where it is and Bailey Gifford's uh, storming last year, I imagine this will probably go quite well, won't it, do you think? Would you, would you care to hazard a guess about that? Uh, well, my, my uh, colleagues on the corporate and sales team at Winterflood are intimately involved in this one, so they will uh, no doubt have their own view. But um, you're right, certainly Bailey Gifford is in demand, has performed very well. But as I said, and as the announcement noted today, they're aiming this very much at institutional and professional investors, and it's um, traded on the specialist fund segment as well. So when the um, fund was originally launched, as I say, just under two years ago, it wasn't marketed to UK intermediaries or retail uh, investors. So there is this idea that for those type of investors, should they wish uh, exposure, then actually you get quite a lot of this through Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and, and some of the other names in the Bailey Gifford stable. So you won't necessarily need a pure play, as you say. How far does it compete uh, directly with Chrysalis, which is another investment trust that at least is in the same sector, is in the growth capital sector, along with the uh, the perhaps unlamented uh, Schroeder UK Public Private Trust, formerly Woodford Patient Capital, I mean, there's a similar sort of process, isn't it? And that one is marketed, I think, to the retail investor, is it not? That's right. I mean, Chrysalis Investments was obviously the Merion Chrysalis Fund at launch. And that's probably got quite a decent retail following now and has actually performed quite nicely. They've come back to the market several times and raised uh, additional capital. But there, there are uh, similarities. I suspect the good people at Bailey Gifford would say that they are uh, looking things on a far wider scale. I mean, clearly... Bailey Gifford have had a lot of traction, a lot of success in this area, and they've built out a dedicated team uh, that specialise in, in making these private investments. In fact, I think over the last uh, eight years or so, they've made investments in 90 private companies, uh, not too far off $5 billion worth. So, um, you know, they've put a substantial amount of money into this area. And one of the things that they always emphasise is the importance of the network that they've developed over that period of time, how their reputation of being a supportive and long-term shareholder has really benefited them in terms of being provided with access to these deals. Uh, and the simple fact is that as and when these things do uh, IPO, Bailey Gifford uh, are not a, a natural seller. In other words, they're quite happy to hold these companies at a, an early stage, in other words, when they're private, but also to retain that holding when they come to the marketplace. Yes, I think I can also add that its shares are traded in dollars, aren't they, uh, in Skihallion rather than in sterling for chrysalis i mean john Kay made that point last week talking about uh, obviously scottish mortgage but about the bailey gifford approach and he was saying that he thought this was one of the primary areas where fund managers can actually make a really useful contribution to the world which is providing equity capital for growing businesses including growing businesses which aren't particularly capital intensive but they are knowledge intensive 
And so this would be a good example of that. Well, we'll see what how that one uh, plays out. Let's move on quickly. Well, we've got <laughs> some results. Uh, first one on the list is uh, our old friend Gabelli Value Plus Plus, who we don't seem to be able to get rid of, at least or the, the market doesn't seem to be able to get rid of, despite the best efforts of the board. Tell us what they uh, the results that they produced and, and how did they do out of interest? Yeah, no, they had their interim results out for the six months to the end of September. Uh, and in that period, the results weren't too bad, to be honest. The NAV total return was about 22%, and that compared with 16% for the Russell 3000 value index uh, and 26% for the S&P 500. So they were a little bit behind the S&P 500, to be fair. Uh, in share price terms, though, they were up 42% which is obviously quite good, but one suspects that probably reflects the, the ongoing corporate activity on, and the prospect of, uh, who knows, potentially a return of capital at some stage. I mean, the chairman did note uh, in the, the accompanying statement that uh, certainly the board continues to believe that it would be in the best interest of the fund to enter a member's voluntary liquidation, uh, although obviously we have this roadblock in the form of its largest shareholder, which of course is connected to the investment manager. So no signs of a breakthrough yet. Well, any uh, comparisons with, with events in American politics would be invidious to make here. So we won't make those. We'll move on. The disc Well, just mention briefly the discount on the trust. It has come in, as you say. Where are we at at the moment? And what does that probably tell us about what might eventually happen? Yeah, it's moving around a little bit. It's in single digits. Um, it's probably trading in a range of a 3 to 6 possibly even a 7% discount. So there does seem a little bit of uncertainty, uh, one would suggest, through the share price in terms of how this one plays out in the short term. OK, so let's move on to another trust, which uh, we weren't able to talk about its results because we the last uh, recording we made was uh, was before Christmas. Uh, these results did actually come out just before Christmas, so we perhaps we should just mention them for a catch-up. It's uh, full-year results from uh, quite a well-known and significant investment trust if you're interested in specific emerging market country trusts, and that is J.P. Morgan Indian. Can you tell us what their results were, uh, Simon, and any other thoughts on that matter? Yeah, so they had their results out to the end of September last year. A difficult period uh, for this particular investment trust. Their NAV was down 16% uh, in that year, and that compared with a fall of 4% for their benchmark, the MSCI India Index. In share price terms, uh, they performed even worse, unfortunately, down 23%. And that was a reflection of the fact that the discount widened from about 9% to 17% over that period. So I think it's fair to say the board were disappointed with that set of results and noted uh, in the accompanying statement that the fund had actually underperformed over three, five and ten years. Measures have been taken. They have looked to uh, lower the stock-specific risk, uh, in other words, uh, broaden out the portfolio a little bit. There's been a, a change of personnel. Chuck Ayers Abraham has become the joint investment manager there. And the fund managers did, did point out that performance had been hurt certainly over that period by uh, the tilt that made to cyclical stocks, and probably not a good year to increase your exposure to cyclical stocks, and, and also some specifics. They were um, exposed to some of the private banks in India, which have proven or did prove difficult last year, and their underweight uh, Reliance Industries as well, which is the largest uh, holding, I think, of the MSCI India Index. So they were um, underweight, that particular one, which performed well, which caused some of their underperformance. I mean, one of the things about the JP Morgan Indian Trust is that it is, perhaps to some might think, surprisingly large trust. I remember when it was launched, and it uh, did particularly well for quite a long time. India was very fashionable for a while as, a, as an investment destination, if you like. 
Uh, and it's quite a significant size, this trust, is it not? So there will be uh, a number of investors in that who might be uh, getting a little restive, might there not? It is a decent size. You're absolutely right. It's the largest dedicated uh, Indian fund in the investment trust world with a market cap of uh, just over 550 million. Probably the next largest would be the Aberdeen New India Fund with a market cap of 320 million. But yeah, you're right. Its performance has not been too good. And and just to give you some stats over the last five years in NAV terms, they've generated an NAV total return of 49%. And that compares with 82% for the Aberdeen New India Fund. And as, as noted, the discount is, is certainly widened out. It's about 16% at the moment. So certainly people would be a little bit disappointed with that. I suppose, though, to be put that in context, I mean, there's a lot of other specialist emerging market country trusts that have done obviously a lot better. But, you know, talking about a 50% gain over five years, OK, that's not a fantastic return. But, you know, perhaps we're getting a little carried up in the whole bull market fervor here where you know, there will be periods when a five-year return of 50% would be uh, would be quite good. I mean, it does appear a risk that some investors at least might be getting a little bit carried away by the bull market that we've, we've seen uh, going on for 10 years now. And indeed, uh, the bull market that accelerated last year rather dramatically towards the end of the year. So I guess to give them some credit, they at least made a positive return, a double-digit positive return, uh, more or less on an annualised basis, perhaps a little bit under. Well, we'll see how that one plays out as well. Finally, on the results fund, let's talk about um, Pantheon International. That's obviously a private equity fund. Can you tell us what they've been saying? So Pantheon this week provided a performance update uh, and really just uh, for how they performed in November. But uh, I think it's worth highlighting their NAV was up over 4% in that month. And that was really driven by valuation gains, which were up 6%, whereas the foreign exchange uh, movements actually detracted. But I think this is a a part of a pattern that we've seen with a number of these private equity funds. I think we talked about Harbourvest and we probably talked about uh, Standard Life also in the same fund of private equity funds space, that the results have been pretty decent as we've gone through the year. And bear in mind that many of these funds are actually, their valuations are based on underlying valuations that will come through as at the end of September. So there is an expectation that when we get into the next month or two and we start to learn uh, what their portfolios were, were valued at at the end of 2020, that they will be kind of pushed up even higher. Despite that, um, that uh, area of the marketplace is still trading out on quite wide discounts. So Pantheon itself is on an 18% discount. Uh, and in general, those funder funds uh, are averaging about probably nearer to 19% now. So they certainly are uh, on relatively wide levels. Okay, so let's move on again. And uh, as I said, regular listeners will not be surprised to hear that Almost first out of the traps this week in terms of making announcement was our friends at Hypnosis, the Music Royalties Trust at Song, who's given us much entertainment over the past 12 months, as well as producing a very respectable return. What can you tell us about what our friends at Hypnosis have been saying this week? Yeah, in a quiet week, they've, they've kind of dominated the news flow, to be perfectly honest. Uh, they've announced three major acquisitions or investments and also um, a, a slight change to their finance arrangements. So just to kind of cover these off relatively quickly, they announced that they'd acquired the catalogue of, of a chap called Jimmy Ivan, who's a record producer and a music executive. Uh, he's incredibly well known in the music business and his catalogue uh, comprised 259 songs. Um, In addition, they've acquired the catalogue of Lindsay Buckingham, who's best known as the lead guitarist and vocalist of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, They had, to be fair, they'd already acquired a 25% share in that particular catalogue back in September last year, but now 
they've acquired the remaining 75%. So in other words, they've got 100% of Buckingham's music publishing rights. Uh, and that catalogue comprises 161 songs. And obviously a number of those uh, will be with Fleetwood Mac. And then finally, and most recently, they've announced the acquisition of a 50% interest in Neil Young, the singer and songwriter's catalogue. Um, so they've acquired his worldwide copyright and income interests. He's obviously been incredibly pro- prolific in his career because his catalogue comprises of nearly 1,200 songs. So a very busy week for hypnosis. Uh, in addition, they've increased their credit facility from $400 million to $600 million, And they may increase that again by an additional $150 million as well. Uh, but they just reminded people as well that their total borrowings will not exceed 30% of NAV. But a very, very busy week for hypnosis. Yeah, so they've been very busy again, as you say. Obviously, some of these names are Lindsay Buckingham, Neil Young. Some of us are almost or are old enough to remember when Neil Young was, uh, you know, he uh, comes out of California, the West Coast, and was uh, prominent in various groups like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And before that, connections with Grateful Dead and all those sort of people from way, way back. But uh, you have to hope that these guys, Lindsay Buckingham and uh, Neil Young, have certainly got their retirement sorted out probably by now if they're receiving payment. But... But, and this is obviously one of the issues we've discussed with hypnosis before, we don't have any details really about what they paid or how they how these things are valued yet. So it is still an exercise in, if you like, educating the market and the market becoming comfortable with the way that this particular trust is going forward. What's been happening to the rating of the trust with all this activity going on? Yeah, it's it, it's a good point. So the share price has really been in a little bit of a range really for the last few months. Um, it's currently something around 121p. Uh, It's probably uh, had a peak in recent times, about 126 or so, so probably somewhere off its peak. But uh, it's probably traded in about a 10p range from about 115p up. So it's on a slight discount at the moment to its operating NAV, probably about a 3-4% discount. But then, to be fair, it did issue quite a lot of paper uh, in the back half of, of last year. So we'll see how this one kind of plays out, really. Yes, it might be just a good excuse to mention uh, something might explain to us again the concept of Z-scores. Now, Z-scores are just something that analysts produce about investment trusts. We've mentioned them before, but we might just mention them again. And what they do is they um, indicate how a trust shares have been performing relative to the trend in their discount. And I think if you look at it on that basis, then hypnosis, because it's now trading at a small discount and has been at a premium for a long time, it would presumably have a Z-score that would suggest that what we put in very heavy inverted commas are cheap. Uh, can you just explain what Z-scores are and why we should also be cautious about uh, the idea of cheap and dear shares? Yeah, so always love an opportunity to explain Z-scores. Basically, uh, and this will appeal to the more mathematical-minded people, the way that you calculate a Z-score is that you look at the discount, looking at discounts here, over a particular range. We tend to look at it over a 12-month period, uh, and we look at all the discounts that uh, an investment trust has traded at over that 12-month period, and then we put it in a standard deviation curve. And the idea is that you look at the current uh, discount or premium, for that matter, and compare how it, how it appears versus its standard deviation curve, so it's, its average curve, effectively. Uh, in the case of hypnosis, actually, it, according to our data, um, it's averaged a discount pretty much where it is at the moment of about 3.7. So it gives it a, a Z score of zero. So not cheap, not dear, probably broadly in line with, with its average. But it, to be fair, it has had quite a, a tr- 
trading range. So we've seen it up to uh, an 8% premium and as wide as a 19% discount. One suspects that was probably a fleeting moment back in March last year. Uh, so in other words, the curve would have been really extended out at that stage. But you're right, people do like said scores. I think they are quite a mathsy way of looking at uh, whether something is, is cheap or dear. Often there's a good reason why something might be cheap and equally why, why it gets a little bit dear. We talked last year about how sometimes where investment trusts are, are trained on quite big premiums, it might be for technical reasons, in other words, that the issuance programme has been delayed or they've run out of issuance authority to issue new shares and then sometimes the premiums get a little bit extended. And you put your finger on a very important point there, which is, of course, the period over which you measure this. So you can measure a Z-score over almost any period, theoretically, a week, a month, a six months, a year, and so on. And you'll often get very different results if you do that. So you have to really know what you're doing to even look at them in the first place, I think. And you have to be very wary when you are looking at them. Why, what sort of people do use them, actually, would you say? Is it mainly professional investors or is, who are the audience for these things? I mean, I think certainly the kind of more professional investors. I mean, there was a time when investment trusts really were traded on the back of their discounts. It would be very much a case that there would be a discount range that an investment trust would trade at. So it might be between kind of mid-teens and a single digit. So and people would monitor that and be happy to buy when they got cheap and, and let shares go when they appeared to get a little bit more expensive. In recent years, and uh, reflecting the changing nature of uh, investment trust shareholder basis, not least the great pickup of retail interest in the sector, I think that's become less meaningful. So I mean, by our calculation, we think that about 36-37% of the investment companies in the sector at the moment are trading around NAV or on premium ratings. So this idea that investment trusts always trade on discounts is, is no longer true, and it hasn't really been true for the last five or six years, that as increasing numbers are consistently traded around NAV or even on premium ratings. Indeed, and that's an interesting trend, and uh, one which I think we will are now pretty well aware of doesn't mean it will last that way forever, of course. We have had a very strong bull market, and that tends to push uh, discounts in a little bit. Uh, at this point, that's the limit of the news, really, is significant news, apart from so there have been some minor acquisitions by a number of alternative asset trusts and so on, but we're not going to cover those this week. We thought it might be a good opportunity just to um, take one final look back at uh, 2020. Uh, it was obviously a very special year, but over the year as a whole, you've had some interesting data you produced um, this week, Simon, looking back over the year as a whole. We covered some of those issues before Christmas, but uh, what were the things that uh, stood out for you in the year when you look back at it from the perspective of you know, where we are now, the first week of January? I think probably that the headline is that it was a pretty good year for investment trust companies. I mean, we, we talk a lot about the FTSE Equity Investment Instruments Index, which just to remind people is all the uh, investment companies that are part of the all share. Um, so I think there are about 150, 160 of those uh, at the moment. And that they've become increasingly important in terms of their weighting within the FTSE all share. It probably accounts for about 7% of the index at the moment. So investment trust companies are an important staple of the UK marketplace. And last year, if you looked at how well they performed, it was pretty impressive, actually. Investment companies were up about 18% compared with a fall for the wider UK market of about 10%. So that was significant outperformance. Again, we talked about this last year, but the largest outperformance that we'd seen in, in over 30 years, you had to go back to the tech boom when uh, investment trust companies did quite well to get anywhere near that kind of level of outperformance. Now, some of that uh, was a result of 
Um, well, we can put it down to the Bailey Gifford effect uh, that a number of Bailey Gifford mandates did particularly well, and obviously Scottish Mortgage Trust amongst them. And, and that is an important consideration. So again, so just to put some numbers on that, um, certainly as we came towards the end of last year, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust was the, the best performing stock in the FTSE 100. In terms of uh, as a, the constituent weight of Scottish Mortgage within the Investment Trust benchmark, it didn't quite double, but not too far off, increasing size from about 65 to 12% last year. So 12% of the Investment Trust Index is now Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. So clearly the fact that that particular investment trust saw its share price double last year had a massive impact on how investment trusts performed. But aside from that, it wasn't just SMT, it wasn't just Scottish Mortgage, it wasn't just Bailey Gifford. There were a number of very strong performers uh, last year and clearly tilted towards technology and healthcare. But even aside from that, I think the majority of uh, subsectors, at least, did themselves proud last year. And one of the other points you made that I thought was quite interesting and is a potential trap, perhaps, for the unwary, is the fact that given how large you know Scottish mortgages have become, how big Bailey Gifford trusts have become, if you look at sort of aggregate numbers which are weighted by the size of the trust, it may actually, if you like, undersell how well some investment trusts have done. Because you can also measure how an investment trust has gone, not just against its peers, but also against its benchmark. Uh, and there can be some quite surprising differences. If you're competing against uh, Bailey Gifford in or Scottish Mortgage, you have to do spectacularly well in order to <laughs> to show up as having done well against the peer group uh, on an equal weighted basis. But you still might have beaten your benchmark by quite a handsome uh, margin. Is is that right? Can you give us an example of that, maybe? Yeah, or? that's that, that that's absolutely spot on. So, you know, as stated, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust was up 108 percent in share price terms last year. Now. That meant that its global peer group, for instance, of which it's obviously the largest constituent, was up 46%. So the vast majority of um, investment trusts investing in global equities underperformed last year, despite, as you say, that they actually outperformed their index. So the FTSE All World was up 12% last year. Um, and a number of investment trusts did very well compared with that. Uh, names such as Martin Curry Global Portfolio was up 22%. Uh, Bankers was up 13%. Midwine International would have done uh, very well as well. So a number would have had a very credible set of results. But unfortunately, the kind of backwash from Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust probably left them looking less good against their peer group. Yeah, so it's something to work out for when you're actually looking at performance numbers. You need to be very clear what it is that their performance is being measured against. And let's finish up. We could talk a little bit about what might happen this year, but uh, let's be honest, most of us don't really know what's going to happen. We put our fingers up in the air sometimes and, and make a stab at it. But I, I think it's fair to say, I mean, a year ago, Simon, you were saying, as we've mentioned before, you spoke at the AIC annual conference and you said that, you know, basically investment trust shareholders have never had it so good. <laughs> that proved to be very timely as very shortly afterwards the market crashed, though not for the reason that, of course, you or anybody else were able to anticipate. Um, but here we are again at a 2% discount across the sector. Very strong fourth quarter performance. Uh, a lot of bullishness around people kind of, you know, vaccination relief. So how do you think we sit at the moment? How would you how would you venture to characterise where we are now? I mean, it's a very good question, clearly, and a very important question. Um, yeah, clearly, if there were to be a major shock in terms of the outlook for the global economy, such as the vaccine, for instance, was proven to be ineffective, or yet another mutated virus came along that 
derailed the outlook for recovery, then clearly you could see the investment trust sector being impacted, as indeed would everybody, but that would be felt also through widening discounts. So there is discount risk within the investment trust sector. That said, that isn't most people's base assumption at the moment. I think most people see after a, a difficult start to the year, you know, in general, there will be a kind of road to recovery. Uh, and if that is the case, that you could see investment trust companies overall benefiting from that. I mean, we talked about fundraising. I think it's quite clear there's a lot of potential fundraising in the wings, ready to make an entry in due course. And you can see a lot of new ideas coming to the marketplace again. I think the UK investment trust market has its own momentum. I think a lot of people want to participate into it from a a kind of investment manager point of view. They're quite keen to launch new product uh, and the success of funds such as Hypnosis and Roundhill obviously towards the end of last year means that international uh, investment houses as well are looking at the UK as uh, a really attractive destination to launch these type of specialist funds. So I think there is a lot of positive momentum behind uh, the investment trust sector. Clearly things could go wrong uh, and indeed, as you, as you rightly observed, we saw that in Q1 last year. But I think, for me, one of the most important things is that it has attracted a whole range of investors. So we talk a lot about retail investors. Wealth managers are still the mainstay of the sector. But also institutional investors as well have, have come back to the investment company world over the last few years, primarily for the, the more specialist asset classes. And I don't think that changes. Investment trusts or investment companies have been hugely influenced by the demand for income, people looking for sources of yield. And I think that as a key investment theme doesn't go away. It seems very unlikely that we're going to see a, a significant increase in interest rates at any time soon. Uh, and that obviously has implications for the bond market. So I think a listed close-ended fund that can offer an attractive yield remains absolutely valid. So I think the relevance of the sector is as great as it ever has been. Yes, and that's very good to know. I mean, I guess one of the concerns would be that some of the assumptions that many of people who have used to justify their bullishness, they think it's going to be a lot of stimulus, not just uh, easy money, but also a lot of fiscal stimulus from the new Biden administration, which has now apparently got control of the Senate as well, which would help it to get it through its stimulus uh, measures. That may make people confident. But we have seen bond yields sort of edging up a little bit. They're up towards about 1%. The the sort of American bond yield up towards 1%. Uh, if that was to continue and people began to worry about uh, inflation and so on, we could see some kind of perhaps a slowing down anyway of the enthusiasm of many investors. But it's all all to play for this year. I think that's uh, very interesting. And Simon, I look forward to discussing all this with you over the weeks ahead. Thank you, everybody who uh, supported this podcast last year. We're very happy that uh, there are a good number of you now and we take great pleasure in uh, in bringing it to you. So I hope you have a happy new year. I hope you had as good a Christmas as circumstances allowed. And I hope you'll uh, continue to join us for our weekly trawl through the investment trust world. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.